Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Adam Rockliffe. I'm your host once again. On Monday night, uh, 22 people lost their lives after a terror attack at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. Election campaigning has been postponed by all major parties until Friday, when the election will begin again in earnest. Prior to the terrible events in Manchester, the Conservatives last week launched their manifesto before sharply U-turning on plans to reform social care. A disastrous interview by Theresa May with Andrew Neil capped a bad week for the Tories, with Corbyn gaining in the, in the polls. The Lib Dems again offended people, this time over a Nigel Farage, Farage team Theresa May love child on a campaign poster, and with the deadline to register to vote passed, maybe now we can get a breather from Jeremy, Emma Watson, and even Gary Lineker attempting to engage the youth in politics which seems slightly unlikely. Uh, so I'm joined today by the Institute of Ideas director, Claire Fox, uh, Jacob Reynolds, who's a consultant at SHM, and Jacob Freudy, who's a journalist and writer and student at UCL. Uh, so a big welcome to everyone. Uh, so I think we should start with uh, your thoughts uh, or after on the reaction to uh, an aftermath of the Manchester attack uh, and the suspension and campaigning. Maybe Claire, you can kick us off. I think it was entirely appropriate after the dramatic events in Manchester and the horror of it all that you would have a temporary suspension of the election. I can see that that would be appropriate but it has gone on too long, effectively. And I think that, you know, this is not... Some people have tried to imply that it's a, a question of sensitivity, but actually we know only too well that one of the most important things about acts of terrorism is our response to them. And in view of the fact that this was an outrage perpetrated against a free society and against a democratic society, one of our greatest weapons in kind of taking on the terrorist would be to assert our democratic uh, instincts and values all the more. And so I've just felt very nervous that this has kind of dragged on in this way. And actually, even worse than that, there's been then attempts at saying, because politics actually isn't suspended, so you then get this kind of backdrop of people saying, actually, Theresa May is using it for electioneering. No, so there's a kind of hidden political debate but are not an explicit one. And when we've had such serious matters as troops put on British streets, the first time since, you know, in terms of mainland Britain, to use that phrase, since 1919, I think, since the police strike, although obviously there was uh, the troops in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, but nonetheless, this is a serious matter. And the idea that we can't debate that politically, or that wouldn't be a matter for the election, uh, I think is, uh, you know, hard to tell. Just one, one last thing. Um, I, I think it does and will have an impact, though, on the debate in relation to the election. Um, I've previously argued that it's very much a Brexit election, but I think this does add another layer to what the debate is likely to be moving forward. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people are saying that uh, issues of national security, you want the former Home Secretary as the next leader. Do you think this is going to impact the vote in any way? People are saying it's going to skew voters towards the Conservatives. In, in, in a sense, yes, but only, I think, because there's been a sort of curious lacuna of actual real substance to Theresa May. So even on the big issue of Brexit, it, she, as everyone knows, she wasn't initially for it. And so even while she's trying to capitalise on the idea of Brexit to win some political capital, 
it's been, I think, and this is why you saw the Tories lead dip a little bit, because people, I think, are starting to realise that there's not actually much of principle or substance or interest in what the Tories are saying. It's why they can U-turn so easily. But this is actually the one thing that you might actually expect Theresa May to be. This is the one thing she she's an authoritarian who runs on law and order and has, like, as a home secretary, but it's pretty outrageous in that respect. So I, I think this will probably help her, because it does actually give her something of substance that she can be identified with. Now, I think what's interesting about um, how the, uh, the attacks could influence the election, kind of the discussion around it is immediately there was all this discussion surrounding social media saying, um, you know, we've really got to be careful that this doesn't lead to a rise in hate crimes against Muslims and that this shouldn't lead to a kind of a nasty discourse surrounding immigration. Um, I, but I think that, you know, looking at you know, how politicians and the public in general have responded to this, that's a kind of a load of nonsense. I actually don't think that this attack will impact, you know, how people vote too much. I think what's really interesting is when you look at what, how Claire mentioned this kind of in quite slightly absurd manner in which these troops have been immediately deployed on the streets. A lot of that wasn't actually down to Theresa May. Um, you look at who kind of issued that um, instruction that actually came from the Home Secretary. Um, so I think it'd be quite interesting to analyse how the attacks and the response to the attacks is distanced from Theresa May especially since, you know, the whole Tory manifesto and their kind of response during the election has been to focus on Theresa May as an individual rather than as the Conservatives. I think that's going to be an interesting thing to watch over the coming weeks. Yeah, so something I think that I've noticed is there hasn't been a real leader step up in response to this. You think it would be Theresa May, uh, but she's hardly been Blair after Diana, the people's princess, that sort of shining icon for people. Uh, do you think there's a void in leadership in response to these sort of crises, Claire? Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm nervous about kind of turning people into iconic leaders anyway. Mm. You know, I don't think that necessarily the events will affect the vote, but I think they will affect the debate and the discussion, and I think that's really what I'm saying. I mean, I made the mistake of saying that the local council elections would not be about Brexit, but the general elections would be. And I was notoriously wrong on that question because the local council elections were absolutely about Brexit. Then something peculiar had happened before the, uh, the, the terrorist outrage, which was that actually people almost were in a position where they felt that Brexit is a done deal. Now, so many people who voted Remain have accepted it that in some ways I think that it was assumed, right, we're going to have Brexit and then can we now talk about some of the political issues? And that was a slight shift and not one I'd anticipated, I have to say, which is where I think the social care debate... And that doesn't mean it changes how you vote exactly, but it, it does, for example, mean that although when I just came, was in Wales at the weekend, I was talking to you know people who are lifelong Labour voters who are now voting Tory because of Brexit. That is what is happening. It is also true that when you actually looked at the polls, and, and May was actually in Wrexham as I was leaving, she was arriving uh, to North Wales, the polls were indicating that a lot of people in North Wales were now not going to vote Tory. And it doesn't mean that they're anti-Brexit. It's almost like, well, we've done Brexit, but actually we just can't bring ourselves to vote for that silly woman or, you know, that authoritarian problem or whatever it was. What I think, what I think might have changed now is, is that, and I hope in some ways that it does happen, is, is that I feel as though we need a proper political discussion about what has happened in Manchester. And that's one of the things which this be careful of what you say, be sensitive uh, mood is attempting to quell. I think that people want to ask questions about, well, what do we think about the fact that we bomb Libya? Has that got anything to do with it? Not the kind of payback 
we've done horrible things to Syrians and they get us back, but more, Libya is an incredibly unstable, absolute warmongers left, right, you know, maybe we've got something to do with it. Or what do we think about immigration in relation to Libyans? And, you know, you might feel uncomfortable with that debate, but that's going to be a debate. What do we think about multiculturalism? Do we have to have endless lectures by everyone that not all Muslims are terrorists every time you want to raise the problem of Islamic uh, fundamentalism? Those are questions which I want to see the light of day. And at the moment, despite everything, and I hate to say this, but the only people really saying that is Farage and UKIP. And they've been put to rest, you know, recently and glad to see the back of them. So I don't want them to be the only people raising what I think are in the nation's minds. I, mean, I think it's, I completely agree with Claire here that this is a, as much a, a societal and cultural issue as a political issue. But I think what's also very interesting is that people are engaging this within the political sphere. So since the attacks, um, we've seen a significant number of comment pieces and comments by politicians in general raving on about how we need to up the um, prevent strategy and we need to start clamping down on Muslim extremism. So I think that, yeah, we do need to acknowledge that this is as part of a political sphere, as a cultural and social sphere. But at the same time, we should see you know, these clamping downs on Muslim extremism via prevent strategy as much as a societal issue whereby, you know, we've got to decide how we're going to combat Islamism and kind of these extreme ideas, whether we do it through free discussion and debate or whether we view Muslims as kind of suspects and sneakily listen in on what they're saying. And, and in addition to that, I think there's also an interesting political debate happening at the moment as to the benefits of encryption and cyber kind of warfare and how these Muslim extremists are using mobile apps like WhatsApp and Telegram to communicate so I do think there's going to be an interesting discussion about these security issues to come during the election, but I really hope that these don't detract from the kind of the narrative that was prevailing beforehand. I think that there was an issue before the Manchester attacks where, you know, the Labour, uh, the Labour Party in particular, were very averse to talking about Brexit and focusing on niche issues, mainly because they thought that would bump up their vote. I think it's more important now than ever after this attack not to let conversation detract from this Brexit issue and instead kind of rally against that and bring Brexit back into the conversation. I mean, just to sort of follow on slightly, the, the, the predictable response after Manchester is the sort of rolling out of prevent strategies and troops on the streets, etc. Et but to me, I mean, I don't want to take that as evidence of some big political discussion going on at all, because I think those are just entirely within the sort of attitude and purview of the security state and they make all of these things like terrorist attacks just a purely security issue, a pure safety issue in which ordinary people don't really have much voice because it's a matter for security experts and people who are experts on radicalization and it's this like uh, very symptomatic of a sort of entirely expert-led response to events like this which in part as everyone sort of knows Brexit is a little bit of a kickback against obviously with Go's famous comments and whatnot so I'll be interested to see whether this can be sustained, whether people sort of having had enough of experts extends to the security experts who are very a bit like Brexit and the EU. Our security experts likewise are manifestly incompetent because this was not this guy was like not like some person who just appeared off in the middle of nowhere. He'd like just come back from Libya, he was flying sort of terrorist associated flags out of his window. And it's like the security services like in this security debate, continue to want more and more power, but they clearly can't use what they have usefully. So I'd be really happy if we saw some sort of recognition that our security experts are not fit for purpose, and we've had enough of them as well. 
Can I jump on that very quickly? I think it's, I completely agree with Jacob that, you know, this is a serious security issue. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to, you know, acknowledge that, I think as Claire mentioned, this is as much a societal issue as a security mm. issue. So I think it's very well saying that this shouldn't have slipped through the net. Um, but at the same time, you can acknowledge that, you know, this Amber Rudd released this stat, that, you know, they've stopped 13 terrorist attacks in the past how many years. But I think at the same time, we've got to acknowledge that the way to solve this isn't necessarily relying on a security system, but instead, you know, hoping, creating or trying to promote a society that is more tolerant, that, you know, where we can have a more open discussion about extremist ideas rather than pushing them underground. And I understand that's a really tough thing to do, especially when you look at, you know, the, the extremist kind of network in Manchester and Birmingham and up the M1. But at the same time, we should be creating a societal discourse as well as a um, security one. Just very quickly, somebody made a good point. Um, which I think is worth noting that this has parallels in terms of a technocratic security matter with the kind of baby P or Victoria Columbia or child protection cases, which is you expand your surveillance to include everyone. You make everybody the target of what you're looking for, which is a bit like what prevents them. You can't see the wood for the trees. And there does seem to me to have been a, something of a crisis of the technocratic experts who are meant to do security, which I wish they'd get on and do and not talk about. Well, that's them over there, right? And then there's a broader political battle of ideas that we need to win in terms of, you know, the, the kind of cultural, social questions. But I just think that there is something in that if we now let the surveillance state get away without scrutiny, that actually they just can't see what they're looking for because everyone's a suspect. And then nobody's a suspect because one of the other problems with the child protection thing was this is that the social was frightened to go in and didn't want to be anti-parents. So you do think, God. And that seems to me to be almost where we're at. So whilst I agree and definitely think that after Manchester will become a bit of a turning point in this election, we have to remember that before Manchester, the Conservatives launched their manifesto. And it was quite a big week for the election and the fact that the Conservatives then U-turned on uh, the social care plans. Uh, how do you view this sort of unprecedented U-turn within the wake of a campaign? I mean, I'd, I'd slightly alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I think it's really, um, it, it's entirely evidence of the, it, what, it's not just Labour that's been found out recently in terms of having no ideas or no principles. It's entirely the Conservative Party as well. Um, and the you saw the Conservative vote seem to dip a little bit. And this was... I mean, as I think people are, people are not stupid, right? And they realise that we like Brexit, yeah, but we're not going to let the Tories get away with whatever kind of random policies they want to push just because we like Brexit. And that's, and, but the Conservative Party don't really have anything. They don't really have anything of substance to fall back on. And Brexit was an absolute godsend for them and May capitalised on it like, really smartly, realising, OK, this is something that I can actually pretend to stand for. Um, and I think that the ability to U-turn and the sort of very lacklustre response to the, the manifesto is just, just evidence of that. No, I think I completely agree that it stems from the kind of a lack of ideas. I also think it stems, this U-turn, from a real sense of complacency and arrogance within the Conservative Party, where they really think that, you know, before they came out with the manifesto, they really thought they are going to get a whopping majority, yeah. and so can plant anything in their manifesto, and they'll be able to do it once they get into power. I think that, you know, recent polls have shown that's not the case, um, following, you know, the manifesto, and that caused the U-turn. There's a bit of a panic. Um, as to whether this would influence the election, um, I initially didn't think it would, mainly because I, I don't think that one main U-turn um, is enough to kind of swing the polls. I think it's very interesting looking at 
some news that's come out today where there's a there's a potential for another Tory U-turn in relation to the whole free breakfasts extravaganza where you know it's become known that this is completely uncosted and is going to cost hundreds of millions of pounds. So I do think that if the, uh, cons- the Conservatives have run their manifesto on the basis that it was fully costed, um, in which they contrasted deeply with the Labour manifesto, which wasn't efficiently costed, I think if it becomes revealed that the Tories are as kind of in economic chaos in terms of costings as the Labour Party, they could be in some real trouble. One of the things that's most galling about this costings question for me is that Actually, if I have any admiration for the Labour Party, and it's mixed, I think that there was uh, the critique of the Labour Party manifesto as being over-idealistic and, you know, two ideas and where are the costings, was one of the most galling critiques. I mean, for me, there wasn't enough ideas, or, and I'm of an age that I'd heard them all before and they were boring the first time round. So, but anyway, regardless, I didn't think that that critique was very... Uh, appropriate because what that implied was, you know, unless you can make it work, it's that typical managerial mindset that didn't have any sense of vision. And I think that that there was some aspects of the Labour manifesto that at least felt like they were trying to inspire people with a vision of the future, which is, after all, what elections are meant to do. The big mistake they made was that they forgot that people had already been inspired by a vision of the future, which is one of the reasons why they voted Brexit. And the Labour Party is so intuitively not on finger on the pulse, that they managed to miss out the most inspiring thing that had happened recently and therefore not want to talk about it. The thing about the Tory points, I don't even think that May is opportunist. I mean, if anything, I thought the Tories had been better instinctively at understanding the importance of Brexit. And I want to give them credit for that. It's just that as a party, they are still only the... They are only the deliverers of what the people voted for. And as soon as you get them to go into detail on their own stuff, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it falls apart. And for me, the, the point about the breakfast, which is I've been following with great interest, this breakfast in schools thing, is not that it's not costed, but it's a ridiculous idea, right? This idea that you improve educational standards by giving somebody a cereal. And it's based on this completely nonsense view that uh, you know, that we're kind of like machines, you know, knowledge for its own sake, inspiring people. You know, it's typical that they're poor people who need to be helped by giving food. They then use pseudoscience to argue that there is evidence that your brain changes if you have a piece of toast in the morning and all this sort of thing, you concentrate more. And it's the fact that the only thing that anybody held them to account for was you haven't worked the figures out, that in a way gets to the heart of what is so dispiriting about mainstream political life that that's the only critique that anyone puts forward. Uh, so I think one of the most concerning things in the Conservative Manifesto is this idea of a government-regulated internet uh, taking inspiration from how China manages people online. Uh, how scared as uh, guardians and advocates of free speech should we be for this sort of idea? Yeah, I mean, very in, in a word, but more fundamentally, this is, I think, further evidence of this sort of lack of principle, because there's a commitment to not implementing to not implementing any more Leveson reforms or anything to the press, right? At the set, so on the one hand, they're trying to make out that they're free speech people, and at the same time, they want like a sort of Saudi Arabian internet. That, that really, really shows there's like very little uh, principle at the heart of this thing. And also, look, the internet, we can have a conversation about whether it's even possible to sort of regulate yeah, the internet exactly. in the way that they want, but more fundamentally, it's one of the few spheres 
that you can have a sort of rough and tumble public life as much as sort of Twitter gets on everyone's nerves. And to, to try and like clamp down on that and the idea that we need to be protected, again, it's couched in the language of vulnerability and insecurity and that the, like the, the state needs to be the one protecting us and there are all these harms associated with it and the, the Tories again co-opting some of the language of contemporary feminism about protecting women from the dangers of the internet. The fact that we're seen in that way in what is potentially sort of continue to be a very interesting tool for political and social engagement, that, that, that really worries me. No, I completely agree with Jacob that, um, you know, this idea of clamping down the internet is extremely worrying, particularly for journalists. But, um, you know, the, the Conservative Party's been at this even before the manifesto. You look at what they were talking with the, um, the Law Commission about implementing, where they would clamp down on the kind of secure methods which, with which journalists communicated with whistleblowers. This is not surprising at all. And I mean, you look at Theresa May's history as Home Secretary, come on, she's the queen of censorship. By spearheading the prevent strategy, this is a woman who kind of wanted to create um, a nationwide safe space. But at the same time, I think it's very important to criticise that. I think at the same time, we should not downplay the significance of the Tory manifesto deciding to scrap Section 40 of the um, Courts and Crime Act. This is a huge, if, if, if implemented if, or if discarded, this is going to be a huge victory for press freedom. I think what's more important is that, um, what's really interesting is that, you know, Labour, I've currently said that this, we should go ahead with this. The Lib Dems kind of haven't really said much, which is a bit worrying, seeing as they like to say they're liberal and democratic. Um, the Conservatives are the only party that are talking about press freedom. So I think, yes, we should criticise you know, what they want to do with the internet, but at the same time, really hold up the value of press freedom in relation to Leveson. Another indicator which keeps getting talked about Newsnight Ron and I put them on it is this idea of the great education divide and uh, how we predict how we will vote is now is not by our class or uh, where we come from, where we live, uh, it's by our level of education. To what extent do we think that we can either use this now as an indicator of how people will vote but even more broadly, do you think education levels becoming the new class? Well, if I can start off, the, there's a sort of good and a bad in here. The, the, the bad is that if we think of education levels as a primary determiner of vote, we tend to, it's associated with a discourse that is about educated people who are clever, who've read all the facts, they support climate change and they're for all lefty policies. And so the people who are introducing this idea of there being education as the new social divide, I think, mean it in a particularly pejorative sense. It's like us, the clever, educated ones versus the stupid ones who didn't go to university. However, it does reflect one of the sort of re-articulations of political life that's been happening in recent years, which is, and there's the sort of David Goodhart and two gender, like, divided society kind of narrative but it does reflect that the um with the breakdown of old political divides around ideas around class the new new political divide has been forming and is i think increasingly coming into view which is a much more culture-led um and a more sense a sense of us and them that isn't along traditional uh, class lines and education has been and continues to be a reflection of that it's not the cause it's the fact that people who live in metropolitan sort of areas, they want to send their kids to get universities and they end up with high levels of education and they can, in a sense, afford to send them on to do masters, etc., etc. It is a reflection. So there's some something useful about understanding uh, the divide through the prism of education, but we, I think we slip into dangerous territory when we think of it as the cause of people having different opinions. Focus on education is quite an important thing. I think that following the Brexit vote is very clear you know, we were told multiple times that it was the thick plebs who voted Brexit and it was the educated class which voted to remain. 
But while I think, you know, there's a serious discussion to be had about, you know, education levels, I think what's really come through in this election in particular is not education, but age. I think rather than being pitted as a general election where we've got the educated versus the uneducated, we have a general election where the young are being pitted against the old. Um, and we've seen this in numerous calls to kind of get young people to vote, which has happened in previous elections. But here we've got a real kind of insidious message informing it, which is that young people need to vote, not just to have your voice heard, but to silence the elderly people whose views we don't like. So I do think that this age element is as important as the education element. Well, it tends to merge, actually, because one of the, the, the assumptions is with nearly 50% of a certain cohort going to university, it's almost in that context um, that sometimes this divide is indicated. Um, obviously, they're kind of writing off the 50% of the young people who don't go to university, but there's a kind of element of that. When they talk about young people, I mean, young people of a certain type uh, as well. And, and that's a huge number, of uh, uh, millions of young people. It, the thing about the, the, the educational divide, I, I do think this has been a profound prism through which a lot of people understand this, has been, a, has been that idea that, you know, if you know more, you will vote the way we vote. Um, you know, and, and there have been major, a lot of public engagement projects at the moment are being funded precisely with this idea that if we can go out and talk to the masses, you know, if we can send scientists out or philosophers out on kind of, to talk in working men's clubs and do road tours and so on, then people will suddenly get wise and then they might vote the right way. So the assumption is you voted the wrong way because you didn't know. And that's obviously both patronising and historically illiterate um, in, in, in many ways in terms of what makes you a wise Democrat is not necessarily anything to do with uh, how well qualified you are. There's a horrible snobbery there. But I think there is also something really weird, which is I do think that probably if you go to university, you are introduced to a worldview that becomes a little bit group thinking. Right, so I think there's probably something in it that's actually reflected, but it's not that you're better equipped to handle difficult situations, but that you kind of associate yourself in an identity politics style way with a particular worldview. And I think it's worrying that universities haven't got a diversity of opinions on show. I think that this like boast, well, look. 90% of all university lecturers voted remain, so we're all intelligent, might be, well, maybe you either didn't allow people to speak up in your university. I mean, it's 97%, I can't remember. And what kind of atmosphere is that for people at university to be opening their mind to new ideas if you've only got one outlook? And I don't just mean in relation to the EU, I mean as a general point. So I think it's one to watch this, although I do have a lot of sympathy with uh, the generational aspect of this is driving me mad mm. um, because I think it's also very patronising to the young to treat them as a demographic cohort but I do think there's... And it's patronising the old as well I think. Completely, but, I, but I'm, I, I'm kind of looking outwards on this because I'm more in the old camp but I, but, I was, but I also think that a lot of young people get flattered by it and, and so you know I've done a number of talks recently where people have said we the young, as a young person Unlike your generation, we understand the importance of European travel and culture. And obviously, I, you know, I want to sigh and then sound like an old person. But do you know what I mean? There's, there's quite a lot of young people, not just the celebrities, not just the political leaders, but themselves adopt this. Yes, we are being betrayed.
as victims. Uh, and a lot of this speaks to uh, the whole fraud which is made around registering to vote. Uh, in many ways, it goes along with your point, Claire, that if you register to vote, then you will inherently vote the right way. Uh, and it's always directed at the often apathet- called apathetic youth. Uh, Jake, you wrote a really good article on this, so I just want to get your thoughts on what this all means. Yeah, I mean, this question of youth versus turnouts have really, you know, it's been in the press ages, for ages. You look at after the Brexit vote, where it's revealed that something like 36% of 18 to 24-year-olds actually bothered to vote, mm. really goes against this notion that, you know, there's the youth who would massively for remain. But I think this question of apathy is the most interesting one, because I'm really wary of equating voter apathy um, with voter turnout, I think that you have a lot of politi- politically engaged younger people who simply don't feel inspired by any of the main parties to go out and vote. I think that's completely understandable when you look at kind of the, the, the status of these parties. Um, so I think that, you know, we're not talking about voter apathy here, we're talking about low voter, t- low voter turnout, and that's the most important dis- distinction to make. Coming back briefly to this idea of uh, the Brexit vote and people not turning out, young people especially, even though they, um, even though they were sort of against Brexit if you polled them. I think, I mean, this is perhaps one of these areas where the generational divide comes out, especially through education. So I think that one of the things that was really, really striking to me was, the, especially while I was at university, was how keen people were to engage in the kind of cultural policing and you can't say that and calling people by the right pronouns and stuff, whilst being completely uninterested in actual political questions. And I think one of the things that in universities people are becoming acculturated to is the idea that you don't really do politics. You do sort of narrow policing of language or a little bit of culture here and there, but the idea that you might get involved in big ground-shaking political movements, that's been entirely replaced by the idea that you tinker at the edges with what you call people and how you address people. And so I think one of the ways in which the generational divide has been sort of deepened through the experiences people have um, have at university is the idea that Big questions are just off the table. That's the same in the curriculum, where you're encouraged to cultivate a tiny, tiny, tiny speciality on a particular issue. And it's the same in the sort of cultural norms that people get at university. Big questions off the table, and as a result, like voting, which is one way in which you might express those questions, regardless of how, how sort of poor our political scene is, that voting would serve no purpose to you, because that's not what politics is to you. Uh, so our thoughts and are with the families of the victims of the Manchester attack. Uh, but now after Manchester, this is where the campaigning starts to get serious uh, and where it really starts to count. Uh, we'll be back before the vote, uh, but you can find more of our podcasts on instituteofideas.com forward slash podcasts uh, and also on iTunes.